Well, the book of Romans, just by way of reminder from last week when we started the book, so it's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and he had never been to the church in Rome, so what this letter was was to kind of pave the way. He was hoping to be able to go there, he was hoping to get there eventually, but he hadn't ever been there, and what he wanted to do was to have Rome be his new base. Rome was going to be his new base, his new uh, headquarters, from which he could then go and, and evangelize Spain. So it was going to be his new, new base. So basically what this was, was Paul's original missionary support letter saying, hey, can you support me on my mission trip to Spain? <laughs> so that's what this was. And as I was thinking about missions and things like that, I thought about when I was able to go to Indonesia. Uh, my senior year of college, I led a group there on a mission trip. And when, probably the coolest, the two coolest things that I got to do while I was there um, where we were able to run these um, kid camps for so some camps for kids and the the one of them we did was for a Muslim village and so I went there before the group all went and saw kind of scoped out everything and sat down with the leader of the village who who was a Muslim and had like tea with him and everything and we had a translator to be able to talk about how we were going to do this and and I was like okay this is really awesome so we were able to go do the bible stories because they still count the, uh, uh, the Old Testament, especially as revelation of God. What's up, guys? And so we were able to do this right there. And then uh, the next week, we were able to go to a rural Hindu village. And this Hindu village, we were able to do kind of similar things, do Bible stories and, and do these camps with these kids. But while I was doing these activities with these kids and talking with the leaders and everything, what just hit me so real was the fact that most of these people had never heard about Jesus. They had never heard about him. They don't have a Bible in their language. They, they were, are classified as an unreached people group, which means less than 2% of their entire population is evangelical Christian, and they don't have a self-sustaining gospel witness in their, in their culture. And I was just... I was riding around on mopeds and like carrying like things and just looking around like what well, what does happen with the person who hasn't heard about Jesus? And I think that's a question that a lot of people have. What happens to the person who has never heard about Jesus, who's living out there in the middle of the jungles of South Africa, who's living, who lived in the 1500s in South America? before the gospel had ever even made it to the Americas, what happened to all of those people who did not know about Jesus? And that question, I think, is answered here in this passage, where we get to a little bit of insight of what happens to those who have never heard about Jesus. You see, he begins to go into his argument. Last week was all about kind of just introduction, basically. And so he actually finally gets into his argument in verses 18 to kind of explain the true essence of what this passage is. And, and the first thing that he goes into right here, look with me at verse 19. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about every person who has ever lived for all time. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So what he's saying is that every person for all time have all been able to see the character and the attributes of God clearly displayed in creation. 
And so when, what, what that means is, is, is often the question is, what, what, what about that innocent person who's living out there in the jungles? Well, that innocent person living out there in the jungles, they have a testimony of God's character around them. Through the created order, they're able to see the divine nature, it says, to see who God is and what God is like through the creation of the world. And so they're able to actually see because God does not hold someone accountable for something they don't know. God doesn't hold, so God can't just immediately punish someone if they didn't know any better. So God is revealing himself through the creation. And what he says in chapter 2, if you flip the page over, it says in chapter 2, verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also, also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, if someone perishes outside of the law, someone perishes not knowing anything about God, not knowing anything about Jesus, they then will also be judged outside of the law. They're not going to be judged according to the law. They're only going to be judged about what they know. And so, what the reality is, is that through creation, even though they did not have the Bible or something like that, they still can see God's nature. And oftentimes, at this point in a teaching, a lot of pastors then go into some sort of super gnarly science explanation. Have you ever been in one of those? Where they talk about some sort of high-level physics or like dark matter or something like that. And they say, here's what science can't explain. Science can't explain dark matter or physics. And see, God, like, science can't explain that. Therefore, God is, is really the master or whatever. God is actually like showing himself through the dark matter or through physics or through quantum mechanics or whatever. And I think that is actually a wrong leap because that's what the church has been doing for the last several hundred years over the rise of modernism and science. And slowly God has become smaller and smaller and smaller because it used to be God brings the rains down God brings the rain, and so we're going to pray to God for the rain, and then science came around, and they said, oh, no, that's actually just the water cycle, and then Christians went, oh, okay, well, if that's just the water cycle, then God brings the lightning, and they're like, oh, no, that's just, like, electrons and, like, electricity and stuff, and then as things started to get explained, God became smaller and smaller and smaller to where now he's just as in the dark matter. That's not the God of the Bible. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that, he up, that Jesus upholds all things through the word of his power. That means when we get to study the water cycle, we get to see how God upholds all things with his power. He is upholding everything through the water cycle. Just because it's been explained doesn't take God out of it and then isolate him to dark matter. God is still upholding all things, and we get to see how he does so through the water cycle, through the seasons, through the, the earth going around the sun and rotating and all that kind of stuff. We now get to see how God upholds all things through the word of his power. And when we get to see that, we get to see his incredible character. We get to see the, the precision through, through which life is able to live, where if it's like one degree colder, everything is terrible, or one degree warm, you know, like all those like statistics. Through that precision, we get to see God's loving character and care and his divine nature, the fact that he is powerful, that he is loving. And the more that we learn about science, the more we get to see how God does these things. And it doesn't make God smaller, it actually makes God bigger. And because of that, 
we in, in our society are, are even more without excuse, it says, because we get to see how much God is actually upholding everything as we study science. And so, all people throughout all the world, they all have, God has revealed himself to them through creation. And they will be held accountable for what they know. And so if they follow that light, that truth, then they will be saved. If they follow that light, they follow that truth, those who haven't heard about Jesus, they will be saved. But let's go to the passage. What, what does humanity do? Humanity, in verse 21, says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they gave, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So God revealed himself. He, he told us who he is through creation. And what humanity did is they did not follow that light. Instead, they decided to exchange it. Three times throughout this passage, it says that humanity, they exchanged. They traded the glory of God for immortal man. And then if you look back down um, in verse oh, 25, there it is. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then in verse 26, for women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. Three times there's an exchange that humanity decided to trade. And here's what they traded. First, they, they traded gods. It says that they traded the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They traded gods. It says that they traded the glory of the immortal God. What the glory of God means, the glory of God is the sum total of who he is as a person, all in like an essence. So like his immortality, the fact that he has always been and always will be, his infinitude, the fact that he has no qualitative limitations, that he is loving, he is kind, he is just, all of those things wrapped up is the glory of God. It was so powerful that Moses, he could not see the glory of God, but had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock. It was so powerful that when Moses left, it left him with a glow. <laughs> he was literally glowing when he left out of the presence of God. That's how weighty and powerful the glory of God is. And what humanity decided to do is they traded it. They exchanged the glory of God instead for mortal men. Instead of worshiping God himself, we now worship idols. The essence of this is idolatry. Instead of worshiping immortal God, we now worship the girl with the pretty eyes <laughs> or the guy with the strong jawline or something. I don't know. <laughs> we now look at some sort of something in creation as our worth, as our identity, as the thing that matters more than anything else. And the reality is, is our souls are much are much too big to be held by anything of this world. The only thing that it can truly be held by is by the glory of God. And when we put ourselves, when we worship something other than God, ultimately, it ends up destroying us. 
And that's what we see that the next thing is. Not only do we trade gods, but then when we trade gods, it then says that we trade, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So first we exchange gods, but then we exchange the truth of God for a lie. In every culture, there are certain lies that are repeated and pressed home in order to be able to feel like they're true and are so consuming. In our culture, I think one of the main ones is that life is about me or life is about you. That is repeated over and over again in our culture that life is ultimately about number one. And one of the most, I think, funny and like classic examples of this was in the movie Avengers Endgame. Did you guys all see it? So I'm not spoiling it, you know, Avengers Endgame came out a few years ago. Um, at the end of that movie, you guys know Thor, the god of thunder, like he's legit, but then like since he failed, then he turned into fat Thor, right? <laughs> he failed to kill, uh, what's his name? Thanos, thank you. Um, <laughs> wow, that was like, <laughs> Thanos. <laughs> um, he then became Fat Thor, and then like, he kind of comes back around, and he, like, they all defeat him at the end or whatever. But at the end of the movie, how they complete Thor's character arc, I thought was so perfect, and the, like, the narrative of our society. His people the Asgardians, right? They're without a home. They're living in some like random shack village thing on earth. And he's their rightful king. He's the, the rightful person to be able to ascend the throne and lead them in order to be able to live a good life and find a new home and build a new society. He's, he's the rightful person to step into that. And, and he goes and he instead passes it on to someone else and there, he's talking to somebody, I don't remember who it is, but he says, he says that he's going to go, and he's now going to go with the Guardians of the Galaxy, and he's going to go basically live out his own life away from all of those responsibilities. And that was a beautiful thing, that he was going to go and pursue his own life, pursue his own thing, and abandon the responsibilities that he had to his people and to, and to his loved ones. And that is what we're being sold every single day. That life is ultimately about you, and life is ultimately about me. And what ultimately will make us happy is if we just abandon all responsibilities to everybody else and instead just totally, um, totally commit ourselves to ourselves. If we do that, then we'll be able to find happiness. And Thor, he's, he's all excited and he's come back around and now he's going to go off with the Guardians of the Galaxy and he's going to be his own life. He's going to be his own thing. And that is the lie that we are being fed. When we take God and we dethrone him, then we put ourselves up on it and we say, now everything bows to me and I only bow to myself. But when we exchange God for the image of immortal, immortal man, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, then it, it leads to the final exchange. We trade our relationships, where that works itself out into broken relationships. And 
here in this passage, we all read it. Everyone, uh, the air was sucked out of the room as soon as we read it uh, because it's so heavy and dense and difficult for our culture to understand, and that is the issue of homosexuality. We, we read it in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And in our culture, it's easy to go one of two extremes. And the one extreme is um, we're going to talk about this all the time and we're going to try and make sure that our stance is totally clear and we're going to berate and belittle anyone who struggles with that. Or the other stance is to totally affirm or totally neglect and not even address it. And I think what my heart is for this time is to talk about it very briefly, we don't have much time, to address it because I think when we address it, the truth sets people free. And I was at a McLaughlin Middle School while I was a, a, a junior high pastor. And on Thursdays, we would do what's called Jesus Club, which means I would go in at lunchtime, bring like a fat load of Costco pizzas, sit them down there. And as I'm walking through the hall, all the kids are like, where are you going with that? I'm like, come to Jesus Club. And then they would all go in. <laughs> and then I had candy too, because I mean, you got to. So <laughs> just bribe them with food and candy to get them to come. <laughs> and then uh, I would have them all eat. And then while they were eating, I would do a quick Bible study. And um, while I was doing that, every once in a while some teachers would come and sit in and like listen to what I was saying. Um, and that was always intense. I was like, am I going to get kicked out right now? <laughs> like, um, but after that, there was uh, a young man who was there who was, who was obviously gay. And, uh, and he, he, he knew his question. And he just sat me down and was like, what's the issue with homosexuality? And as I sat down with him, I did my best to say homosexuality it is a sin we don't think that that's God's design for sexuality for relationships but at the same time it is no worse than any other sin it's it's no um, all people are equally guilty before God and what we need is God's grace because it's God's grace that changes us it's God's grace that molds us and changes us and turns us into a new society, into a new humanity. And I took him to this passage because he was like, is it really a sin? Because that's the first question that we all have to grapple with and you need to grapple with as an individual. Do you think homosexuality is really a sin? Do you? Grapple with this passage. And that was his first question. And I took him to this passage and I, I read him this passage and he was like, okay, then the next question is, is okay, so what, 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 is that, what does that leave? Does that mean every homosexual, homosexual person is going to hell? The reality is homosexuality doesn't send anyone to hell. Sin doesn't send anybody to hell. Not believing in Jesus is the thing that, makes, that causes people to go to hell. If sin sent people to hell, that's where I would be. <laughs> that's where I would be. 
That's where we all would be. Sin isn't the thing that sends people to hell. Not believing in Jesus is the thing that sends people to hell. So it's a wrong question to say homosexuals, do, do, are they sent to hell? That's the wrong question. Believing in Jesus is the thing that sends people to heaven. Not believing in Jesus. It's a totally different rubric, totally different rhyme. And so then the next question is, okay, so now that I believe in Jesus, now what if I'm a homosexual? And I've had friends who are Christians who who's gay and I was talking with him about it and and he said I've decided to live my life as now living my life celibate and that is a heavy cross to bear that is a difficult thing to bear and that is I believe what the Bible would recommend because it's loving to him as an individual to be able to have and experience intimate and genuine relationships within the church. We're a part of the family of God. And he can experience a lot of the growth and the things that come along with it in his singleness. But at the same time, it's not damaging, damaging to, um, if you were to get married to a woman or something like that, like that's not good for the woman, right? Like that just doesn't make sense. Um, and so this issue it is one of the biggest issues of our culture. But the reality is, is it is just one in this long list. Let me read the list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When we exchange who God is, put ourselves on the throne, all of our horizontal relationships begin to crumble, and this list covers basically every single horizontal relationship that could go wrong. Everything that could go wrong in a horizontal relationship with another human is covered right here. All of our relationships are become broken. And the reality is, is all humanity then falls into this. But God is not ambivalent. When he looks down and he sees us in our sin and in the brokenness and in the, the just crushing that happens, he's not ambivalent. He's not distant. Instead, he sees the evil and he wants to rectify it, and he hates the evil of this world. The very first verse that sets up Paul's entire thing, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. God intensely hates all evil and unrighteousness and everything that causes brokenness and division. And if God didn't hate it, he wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be a good God. Instead, he intensely hates all of those things because it destroys, it breaks, it, it is against how he created the world. And here, Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed. What does the wrath of God look like? Three times in this passage, Paul says God gave them up. In other words, God allowed them to do what they really wanted. 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not, acknowledge, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up 
to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The primary expression of God's wrath is to give them up, to hold back the torrent of evil that he is currently holding back from every individual. He's holding it back by his grace, and his ultimate act of wrath is to let those hands go and to let the torrent of evil that is inside of each one of us ripen, grow, produce fruit, and destroy us. Because deep inside of all of us is that root of evil. And we see this not just in the book of Romans, but throughout the Old Testament, the primary expression of God's wrath is God turning his face, giving them up, abandoning someone. It says in, verse, in Isaiah 57, verses 7 and 8, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, in other words, in wrath, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The ultimate expression of God's wrath is to give people up, to let people do what they're really wanting to do. And when that happens, we see echoes of it in this life. We see echoes of it in this life. When people have a real bad idolatry problem, we see how it just disintegrates their life. If someone is really greedy, you see how they become isolated. If their idol is money, they become isolated. They start using people. They're never happy and it starts slowly disintegrating their life and their just who they are as a person starts getting smaller and shrivels. That is, then if they don't totally believe in God and they don't confess and believe in him, imagine that played out for all eternity. That's what hell is. It's our freely chosen identities played out for all eternity. That's what God's wrath looks like in hell, is letting people do what they really want, and it slowly disintegrates them. It's a fire that cannot be quenched. C.H. Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis touch on this, where C.H. Spurgeon says, O ungodly and impenitent man, there is in thyself today, which, let alone and permitted to ripen, will bring a hell upon thee. Sinner, the Lord needed not to forge huge chains of iron or build cells of darkness. He shall find in sinners the means of their punishment. In other words, it's already in here. Hell, C.S. Lewis says, begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing that will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. So going back to our initial question, what about that innocent person out in the jungle? The answer of the Bible is, there are no innocent people. There is no innocent person. Not only is God not ambivalent to the evil of this world, he's not ambivalent to humanity in their sin and in their brokenness, but instead God came down. And just as we traded God 
for ourselves, God comes down and he says, I'm going to trade myself for you. And the wrath that you were going to experience, the disintegration that you were going to experience, the fire that you were going to experience, I am going to take that upon myself. I'm not ambivalent to it, but I'm going to die in your place so that way you can receive eternal life, so that way you can live forever. I'm not ambivalent, I'm not distant, I'm coming down and I'm switching places. There are no innocent people and I'm going to come down and trade places so that way anyone who believes in me will, no, will not perish but have eternal life. That's what Jesus did when he came down and he then came to rescue us and redeem us and there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Jesus is the only way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so every person across the entire world must confess their faith in Jesus if they want to be saved. And the book of Romans is a missionary support letter. Why does it start with this? Because it starts with an urgency. We can't get to the good news without the bad news. Paul, he's saying that every single person, the person in Spain who hasn't heard about Jesus yet, they are guilty because God has revealed himself through creation and they need to be saved through Jesus and the atoning work that he did on the cross. They must be saved and believe in him. And this just for me brings up the, the urgency of missions. That we must be those who are on mission because the stakes are high and this is real. And God actually died to save us. And to believe in him actually brings out eternal life. And eternity for me, I'm almost done and then we're going to worship. But eternity for me really came home today. Um, over the last uh, few weeks, but a couple months, um, my grandpa has been going downhill and with cancer and stuff. And today at 105, he went home to meet with the Lord. And he's an incredible man and has left an incredible legacy of faithfulness and all of that. And in like the weeks leading up, we would have times with him and sometimes he could talk, sometimes he couldn't. And so sometimes I would just read the Bible or um, try and talk with him. And, and in the last conversation I really had with him, he, uh, uh, we, we asked him about heaven. And I was like, so like, what, are, are you excited for heaven? Like, what, what do you think? And like, what are your thoughts? And, and he said, it sneaks up on you. And for some reason, that just really got to me. That we think we have the world ahead of us as young adults. <laughs> we have all the time in the world. And sometimes it takes, it takes a grandpa <laughs> saying it sneaks up on you to realize that this stuff is real. And if we truly believe this, are we living our lives in accordance with that? On mission, not just out there, but in our everyday lives. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you actually confessed your faith in him and said, no, I'm no longer the king of my own life, but God, you are the king of my life. 
And I totally submit to you, whatever you want, I will do because you are my God and you have saved me. And I throw myself on your grace because I have nothing to offer because I am guilty. We're being sold a bill of goods that life is about ourselves. And life isn't about ourselves. Our life is about something so much bigger. Our life is about God. And it's about his glory. And we get to be with him forever. And his glory, the essence of his person, (laughs) the sum total of all of his qualities, we will get to bask in it. It will be our light. There is no sun because his glory will light everything. We get to be with him forever. And what we're going to be doing is worshiping him forever. Because he is worthy. He came down and died on the cross for us. He saw us in our rebellion. He saw us in our, in our running away from him. And yet he wasn't ambivalent. He came down and he died for us. And by his grace, we get to live with him forever. We get to receive new bodies. Even though the outward man is wasting away, the inward man is being renewed day by day. We get to be with him. We get to love him. We get to worship him forever. And now today we get to have a uh, prequel (laughs) in anticipation, waiting for the day that we get to truly hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And, And that's a day I'm so excited for. And so the worship team is going to come up and we're going to do a chill time of worship and um, just spend time with him. So Lord, I thank you for your grace and your love and thank you that we get to be with you forever. That in you is life. That our life is hidden with you. That in this world there is no life. But instead, we really do get to be with you. I pray that you'd help us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you. That we would live in accordance with the truth. That we would not live lies. But instead, we would live out the truth. And that we would be set free because of it. Set free to worship set free to have relationships and connect in community. Be free to offer ourselves because we know that our lives are short. Heaven sneaks up on us. And I pray that we would live for you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.